So I was listening to the newest episode of Red Collar, so this podcast on white collar crimes that have turned to murder. And this dumbass not just googled what would be the best place to dispose of the body, but he bookmarked the dumbass page. Like, as somebody who doesn't do bookmarks, who does tabs and trusts her brain to remember what websites she has open at all times, because it's mostly Gmail and YouTube and Spotify. So, um, yeah, that was dumb. my conclusion of that. But also, then I googled it because I just like to be red-listed at, like, the local police departments, I guess. I had the same feeling that I had when I've done the mini-sode that I called How to Get Away with Murder. There is overwhelming information online and I feel like every single article will be telling you a different thing. That's kind of why when I've done it, I broke it down. But I just thought, like, why would you bookmark that page? Like, made if anything, and he was some IT specialist. If anything, you wipe that shit out of your history forever. <laughs> Zanavek. Forever. Patona la vida. So that is what's new in my life today. I was listening to it, by the way, while I was in the gym. And also, just when I finished the workout, I realized that... I don't know if there's a psychological name for this, but there should be. If there's a fucking psychological term for, like, hybristophilia, which is basically, like, obsession with serial killers, well, there definitely should be a psychological name for somebody who starts tripping that after one workout they're ripped. They're, like, the shit. Like, <laughs> the person that expects muscles after, like, workout number one, because that is truly me. Like a 29, almost 29-year-old. Who, like, literally, I understand that it's like a meme. It's like a whole joke on the internet. But no, for me, it is real. Every single time, I'm like, I mean, you know, no more flappers, no more wings. I can get, you know, into the wife-beater shirts now. We need to stop calling them wife-beater shirts. All right. Hi. (laughs) This is If You Feel Lost. You have just been found, because this is, as the science says behind me, by all means necessary. It is a podcast. It focuses on light-hearted true crime. There are timestamps if you don't like to listen to me talking about psychological effects that Jim has on me while she's drinking coke after a workout and expecting miracles. My name is Maya. I started this podcast about... A year and a half ago, yeah. We're going strong, we're going strong. And, well, actually, maybe a year ago now, or like a long time ago, I've done a mini-sode on Capture in the Rye-inspired crimes. It's, it's really good. I mean, it's like, not to, not to be egoistical about my own work, but like, it's cool, it's light. And it's when I actually knew how to do mini-sodes, it's mini-sodes. Like, they lasted for like 30 minutes. That could be your next listen. And one of the people that I spoke about during that mini-sode was John Hinckley Jr., And Hinckley was the guy that attempted to assassinate Reagan. And after the police looked into his flat, they found Catcher in the Rye on his night table. Or like, yeah, one of those little coffee tables. And ever since I've done that mini-sode, I really wanted to take a deep dive into John Hinckley Jr. Because he, from even what I gathered by reading, like, one or two articles at a time, had a really interesting life. And I was right. This research did not disappoint. So, the second case in the month of assassination attempts is focusing on John Hinckley Jr., his life prior to attempting to assassinate President Reagan, and the aftermath of it all. But before that, let us dive into the two expressions of today. The origin story that inspired the research into this expression... Okay, my... Saying it as if you're gonna speak about it for an hour. I'm actually listening to the audiobook that's called What Everybody Is Saying, that is written by this body language analyst. I feel like Logan from Observe recommended that. That is, like, one YouTube channel that I watch on the reg. And I use it for my own research. So, the chapter that I was listening to was sort of discussing, like, face, like, everything on your face. And how whatever you do, from, like, eye-blocking to how you move your lips in contempt, how everything means something else. 
And this guy was going through different parts of the face, coming to the chin at last. And then he spoke about keeping your chin up, how it reflects confidence. So I was like, hey, let's look into this. Where did this expression come from? And when I tell you, there is not much on this expression, but the actual origin, where this expression sort of came from, has a whole Wikipedia page, because of course it has to do with the British. So keeping your chin up means that you should remain cheerful, like in a negative situation. Like, you know, you'll go through it. Just, just keep your chin up. Keep your chin up is an American expression that was first seen in the Pennsylvania newspaper The Evening Democrat in the year 19,000. And this is the excerpt from it. Keep your chin up. Don't take your troubles to bed with you. Hang them on a chair with your trousers or drop them in a glass of water with your teeth. Disgusting and visually just not on point. And apparently, according to this article, this is one of those expressions that you, after a certain repetition, it kind of just becomes part of the language and it gets drilled into the people that are using it, usually a certain generation. And they compared it to the expression that was drilled into the young of the Victorian England, which was keep a stiff upper lip. Now, if you're British and listening to this podcast, I would love to know, like, what generation still, if any, uses keep a stiff upper lip. To basically tell you to keep unemotional, to keep stoic in the face of adversity. Visually, it's easy to understand why somebody would say that, because once your lip is trembling, you, of course, kind of are about to lose composure. You're either about to break down or start crying. But did you know that the phrase became symbolic of the British people, particularly the students during the Victorian era? During the age of the British Empire, their schools would be heavily influenced by Stoicism, and they would aim to instill a code of discipline, character-building competitive sports, corporal punishments, and cold showers, all in an attempt to make all of these boys into, like, stern men who would never cry. <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna backfire. They're totally not gonna need all the therapy in the fucking world. But why I'm saying, like, tell me if somebody in your family still uses this expression is because in more recent years, it's kind of, like out of use, mostly because we are more pro-vulnerability therapy and actually people showing some emotion on their faces. Except if you are from royal family, in which case I kind of have some doubts that you're also listening to this podcast, you know. Call me crazy, I just kind of know my audience a bit better than that. The second expression I'm going to be talking about today doesn't have the origin story. I don't know why, I just remembered it, and I realized that I don't actually know the origin. And it's also super interesting. I like when that happens, when I don't even go looking for them. I'm just like, hey, an expression, and it pops into my head. And it is head over heels. And I always associated being head over heels with love like, being head over heels for somebody. But, first of all, it didn't actually start with love. But also, that isn't the meaning of the expression. It is to be excited. The origin of the expression was actually quite literal. It literally came from this report from London Annual Register newspaper from 1766. And the expression at first was heels over head. It was literally used to describe somebody who has fallen with their heels over their head, stuck in snow, and had to wait until their friends came to basically untuck him and get him the hell out. Then later on, in 1770s, it was used to basically describe either a headstand or just in general being upside down, topsy-turvy, topple-up tail, Arse over tea kettle. No, I need to look into this arse over tea. <laughs> Note to self, I need to look into this arse over tea kettle in this lineup of synonyms because nobody uses any of this shit except from upside down. The first connection between this expression and love actually came almost a century after. In 1833, in this Indiana newspaper, there was this article that cited, About ten years ago, Lotta fell head over heels in love with a young Philadelphian of excellent family. 
Then in the Irish newspaper in 1832, Michael Crocker swore that he was overhead and heels in love with her, and that he had no business in this world unless she consented to make him happy. And this is when the expression started being used more and more often, and that is because, again, visually, if you think about it, our head is usually over our heels, unless you are in a cartwheel position, unless you're turning cartwheels in excitement. There is absolutely no way to segue between turning cartwheels in excitement and this case of the day, but, but I found a way. I found a way to segue into the social media break. Hey, so if you are just a fit human who can turn cartwheels into excitement over this podcast, over this human being, well, make sure you follow me on all the socials, deadbampod across the pond, and then podbam at gmail.com is the snail mail. And then if you are a YouTube slut, you can also find me on my second YouTube channel, Mayama Bengezo. And now let's dive into the case of the day. On March the 30th, 1981, John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Reagan. What culminated in an assassination attempt started off as an obsession with a TV star and a single movie plot. What were his motives? On Monday, March the 30th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan was to deliver a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel. This hotel in particular was chosen as a location because it was preferred among the members of the Secret Service because it had this secure walkway designed for presidential use. And also, there wasn't much of it. Like, the exit where the president would get out from would be really close to the parking spot where his limo would wait for him. This passageway even had a name, and it was named President's Walk after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. And this was the passageway that Reagan used that day at 1.45 p.m., waving to the crowd of media and citizens. What he couldn't have known was that laying in wait just outside the Washington Hilton Hotel was John Hinckley Jr. What Hinckley would later say about this wait was that he looked up at the presidential box above the stage where Abe Lincoln had been sitting the night he was shot and felt a curious sensation. He thought that even though the situation was different, there was this whole president's walk, this is why the hotel has been chosen, and now the president would have had all of this secret service protection, how easy it still would be for somebody who had enough determination to get close enough to the president to shoot him. After the president finished his speech, him and the secret service are just getting outside, literally between the exit and the limo was around 30 feet, which also meant that the Secret Service members weren't wearing bulletproof vests because they thought they would be safe. It is only 30 feet, like, and then they're gonna be inside the limo and out of there. 30 feet is about 9 meters for anybody else like me who operates in metric systems and just doesn't really understand this whole feet, inch, gallons situation. God, I just... What what pains me the most, Americans, is how you calculate weight in pounds. Like, that would just freak me out. If somebody was like, you are like this many pounds hard. (laughs) That shit freaks me out so much. I think it might be PTSD from, like, watching things like The Biggest Loser. But it's just... If somebody was to put me on a fucking scale and then, like, I would see my weight in pounds, why would you want that for yourself? Like, who the fuck... Like, who hurt you? So the president only needs to walk nine meters to his entrance to the limo. But of course, because this was a speech, there was a lot of citizens and the media outside. He's facing everybody, sort of just waving, acknowledging everybody in order not to be rude while walking to the limo. The assistant press secretary, who was actually waiting just behind the rope line for Reagan to emerge, said that 
as soon as he came out and sort of like started like waving and acknowledging people, he heard the sound of a pop. It sounded as if somebody popped a balloon and then after a short lull, there were five more pops and he knew somebody must have fired a gun. That somebody was Hinckley, who opened fire and fired six times in about 1.7 seconds, but he wasn't necessarily a good shot. Even though, regardless of them saying he wasn't a good shot, he still has done a lot of damage. The first bullet hit the press secretary, James Brady, and James would become permanently disabled and eventually die from his injuries 33 years later. This would be the most damage he had done. But just imagine, like suffering for 33 years and then succumbing to your injuries in the end. The next shot went into the police officer, Thomas Delahanty, and then the third one into a Secret Service agent, Tim McCarthy. It was only then that Hinckley fired two more shots, kind of blindly, and the last and the final bullet kind of hit the limo first, then ricocheted and hit the president under his arm. And if you've ever seen the pictures of this event online, or if you're watching on YouTube right now, I'd like to know what you think, or like what you thought when you first saw them. Because my reason for never fully looking into this case before was just how amateurish that whole scene looked like. I think it's truly a representation of like how used we are right now to seeing all these over-dramatized scenes on like crime TV shows, especially like NCIS, Criminal Minds, all of that shit where it's like typically over-dramatized how they tackle people, but everything looks perfect, you know? There's no time wasted, there's no people on the ground like over Hinckley in order to overpower him. This scene to me always looked like it's everybody's first day at a job and nobody truly knew what they were doing. Like everybody's kind of looking a different direction. Some people are on the ground tackling Hinckley. Some are like over the president trying to see like if he had been hurt. It's just truly different times, but it's also like what we expect to see in a situation like this now, compared to probably how people dealt with these kind of situations back in 1980s. Well, as for the president, at impact, he didn't even realize that he was shot. That is, until he started coughing up blood. Because of this, initially, once they entered that limo, they headed for the White House, but they immediately changed directions as soon as they saw that the president is actually coughing up blood. And once they arrived at the George Washington University Hospital, Reagan was actually minutes from death. So who is John Hinckley Jr., who are his seniors, and why Reagan? John Hinckley Jr. was born in Oklahoma on May the 29th, 1955. He was the youngest of three children, and his dad was a successful businessman in the energy industry. I'm sorry, I just have to do this. I have to Google because whenever I hear Oklahoma, things that come to mind are never good. Because in true crime world, it's just not good. It's Timothy McQuay, it's Tulsa Massacre, it's my manager that I used to work with who was complete bitch, literally, and also sold her soul to the devil in order not to return to Oklahoma, so that's a whole last story. It's probably why she was a bitch, because her life is shite, but she definitely did not want to return there, so okay. I just googled Oklahoma celebrities, right? Let me see if I know any of these names. Brad Pitt? What? No way. <laughs> no way. Apparently, Blackbeat. Oh, Reba McIntyre. Okay, cool. I liked Reba as a kid. Do do do. Blake Shelton. Nah. <laughs> that is okay. If we had to put faces and say like, oh, what state do you think they were born in? Blake Shelton. I'd be like, makes sense. <laughs> Sorry. Bill Hader. No way. You guys win with this one. You see? Okay, Oklahoma, you, you have something going for you. <laughs> to Bill Hader to, like, for you to say something, although, like, everybody else is, like, a lot more famous. There's literally a whole list. I just know these people's names. But yeah, okay, cool. Reba? Okay. Okay. Okay, Oklahoma, you have some points going on for you. Now, let's move on to this story, because you're gonna offend a bunch of fucking people. And uh, you can always comment below what else is great about Oklahoma, because I really want to know. Because ever since I worked with that one manager, I'm just so freaked out. 
with the level of her wanting to stay here and work for like a really shitty company over going back to Oklahoma, I was like, what are you running from? Like, how bad is it? What the actual fuck? So yeah, I think it might have been some personal issues there with her own family and friends rather than like Oklahoma as a state. That would be a generalization, don't you think? Yeah, okay. Cool, moving on with John Hinckley Jr. Back to the story. Well, Hinckley didn't stay in Oklahoma for too long. His family moved to Texas when he was young, and from all of the sources that I have read, he was a good student, he was doing well in sports, especially basketball and football. And just like with many of these people where it's a seemingly good childhood, it's a great household, usually for these people things start to change in high school. And that is because they don't fit in to any of the friendship groups that get created, and then they start isolating themselves. And that's exactly what happened with John. In high school, he started losing interests in sports, in friends, in interacting with people the way he did before, and instead he chose to play the guitar and to listen to music alone in his room. After he graduated from high school, Hinckley moved to study at Texas Tech University in the mid-1970s. But in 1976, he decided to quit college and he moved to California. Here he really thought that he is going to get his musical career off the ground, but it just wasn't happening. So later that year, he moved in with his parents to their Colorado home. During this period, it really started taking a toll on him, the fact that he had to move back in with his parents, that he didn't have any career prospects at the moment, he only wanted to commit to his music, but he didn't seem to be making profit out of it. And this was taking a toll on him to the point that, well, his parents kind of took him to see a doctor, and this doctor prescribed him some antidepressants. This is the state that Hinckley was in when, in 1976, the taxi driver came out. The taxi driver, starring De Niro and Jodie Foster, was about this cab driver who started becoming more and more detached from reality, and his fascination started becoming cleansing the city, cleaning up the streets, because he would usually be working in, well, a red district kind of town, whichever town it really was based in, and that is how he met this young sex worker that was played by Jodie. So there were really two plots to this movie. One was rescuing Jodie Foster from her pimp, and then the other one was based on his own love interest that was played by Sybil Shepherd, if I remember right, and planning an assassination in order to win her over. So guess which plot our boy John Hinckley here is gonna get obsessed with. And now thinking about this, I was like, okay, but... He's a grown-ass man. He's, like, at the university age at this point. Why would he get so fascinated by this plot? Why would this be so impressionable on him? I think we need to take the mental health into account here, and that he probably wasn't thinking completely rationally. But also, I believe that this kind of, for the first time in a long time, apart from his music, was the one thing to give John Hinckley a purpose. He started identifying himself with the Nero's character, he even began to dress like him, to wear army clothes and boots, and to keep a diary, just like his character did in the movie. And as such, I feel like after he has seen this movie for about 15 times, he saw the purpose in the Nero's character, I think his name was Travis in the movie, and how Travis's fascination was always to clean up the streets, but always through this one focal point. Iris, who was played by Jodie Foster, because if he can rescue her, if he can save her, if he can make a point there and either, like, beat up or kill her pimp, then everybody's gonna look at him as a hero. Then he'll suddenly get the notoriety that he deserves. And in my personal opinion, had John Hinckley Jr. had somebody in his life to obsess over, I somehow have a feeling that this would have ended even worse than it did. Because I'm just thinking, if this was the way that he was impressionable about this plot, whether or not he would have gone towards the assassination of a president, 
or rather whether he would have imagined this whole plot where he needs to save this person and somebody else is endangering that person's life. But instead, who John Hinckley Jr. focused on was Jodie Foster herself. Around this time, he starts writing letters to Foster, and at the same time, he bought his first gun and then bought a couple more to add to his collection. He also received some psychiatric treatment, but it didn't seem to help much improve his mental state. And because it was different times, I don't really believe that many people could actually even identify like and pinpoint exactly what mental illness he had and therefore couldn't really treat him for it properly. And also because of the times that we are speaking about, it was much easier to get in touch with celebrities. He even tried calling Jody multiple times. He would send her letters, and some of those letters were actually replied to directly by Jody. It was completely different times, and stalking still hasn't been seen as such an issue for Jody to even see the amount of red flags that we might see here. So, she, at the time, started studying at Yale in 1980. She started studying English Lit, and she would eventually major in African-American literature. And at the time, as she was getting more and more famous, Jodi, I feel one of the main reasons why we love her so much is because of how unbothered she constantly was. How cool and chill she was about the level of fame that she's at. I still don't think to this day that Jodi understands, like, how big she is. Jodi would later kind of speak about this transition to uni and to fame, just as, like, being completely lost. Because it just seemed like, you know, she was a child, and then this role happened, and from then on, it kind of imploded, and she was suddenly known, receiving a ton of fan mail. And I feel it was exactly because of that, exactly because she kind of compartmentalized that part of her life, that she was unaware that Hinckley, A, followed her to Connecticut, that he started writing to her more and more often, and how obsessive it was getting, and the red flags in him even starting to hand-deliver some of these letters. It was only when she answered one of his phone calls that she will later learn that he recorded that she kind of got spooked. She asked him who it was, and he said, it's the guy that was writing all of these letters to you. And from that point on, she would hand all of those letters to the dean. Apparently, according to one source, this dean handed those letters to the police department, but they didn't manage to track him down in time. The main reason why we can't put mental health issues aside is the fact that Jody was nonconformist. Like, she was always trying to stay low-key, never to be a center of attention, to just continue living her life, to study, but also to get, like, some roles in different movies. She was always unbothered by fame. While Hinckley, in his head, really thought that the only way to make an impression on Jody was if he was to become a national figure. And at the time, it didn't seem like his music career is gonna lead him there. And also, if you remember, he was really fixated on this plot of this movie. He identified with this character so much. So the only logical solution to Hinckley at this moment in time would be to assassinate a president. At the time, the president was Jimmy Carter. And John here was actually surprised how easy it was to get close to a president. He was only a foot away from him at one event, but then got arrested at Nashville International Airport in 1980, and he was fined for the illegal possession of firearms. Nobody connected, though, that he was at this airport because Jimmy Carter was making a stop there while he was campaigning. And because of that, nobody notified the Secret Service. Nobody had any idea of this plan that John was keeping in his head. In 1981, Ronald Reagan gets elected, and now John is devising this plan. But by this point, he has already tried to communicate with Jody. And the more that Jody started ignoring him, just handing these letters to somebody else, and was completely unaware of the extent of this obsession, the more he was obsessed with her. In a recording on the New Year's Eve 1981, he said, 
Jody is the only thing that matters now. Anything I might do in 1981 would be solely for Jodie Foster's sake. I think I'd rather just see her not on Earth than being with other guys. In March 1981, John wrote Foster one final letter. In this letter, he would outline the plan for a historical deed that he had ahead, and he began by saying, As you well know by now, I love you very much. Jody, I would abandon the idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be a total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms that I'm doing all of this for your sake. There is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. This letter is being written an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. I love you forever. John Hinckley. He would end up sealing the letter to Jody, who was 18 and a freshman at Yale at the time, but he would never end up sending it. Jody was at uni when Reagan was shot, and it won't be until she returned to her dorm room and she saw it on the news that she realized this is the man who would come to my door to hand me the letters. Now, why Reagan? I'm gonna touch just a bit on who Reagan was at this moment in time, but I just want you to know this is purely because he's a victim in this case. Because I don't think there's much, if anything, in who he was as a person, or as a president, for that matter, that made Hinckley do this. Ronald Reagan was born in Illinois, and he became a Hollywood actor in his 20s. Later, he would move on to serve as the Republican governor of California from 67 to 75. He served two terms as a president. He was famous for cutting taxes, increasing defense spending, negotiating a nuclear arms reduction agreement with the Soviets, and also credited for bringing a quicker end to the Cold War. If anything within Reagan's presidency was to have triggered Hinckley, it would probably be the lavish lifestyle that him and his wife Nancy introduced in the White House, the first lady would wear designer clothes and was famous for hosting numerous state dinners and redecorating a White House. And not only the White House, but also the economy of the country by 1981 started to see some prosperity. And Reagan's critics would always say that his policies favored the rich and that the gap between the rich and the poor was actually huge. So, when these three worlds collided, both Jody and Reagan were thriving. They were on the rise, having the careers they aspired to. And Hinckley was at his lowest. Now, we go back full circle to the moment of the shooting. The bullet ended up hitting his left lung and just missing his heart. According to the witnesses, he walked into the university hospital by himself, and as they were preparing him for the surgery, he turned to Nancy and said, Honey, I forgot to duck. And to his surgeons, please tell me you're Republicans. But the surgery was successful, and he actually went back to resume office within a month. In terms of the other victims of the assassination attempt, Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy and the policeman Thomas Delahanty eventually recovered, but James Brady, who was shot in the eye and suffered permanent brain damage, became an advocate of gun control. Due to his injuries in 1993, the Congress passed the Brady Bill, which was to establish a five-day waiting period and background checks for prospective gun buyers. And President Bill Clinton was the one to sign this into law. This is 93. What the hell was going on before that? Like, were you not doing background checks at all? And even to think that some states just still don't do... Listen, if the gun laws didn't freaking change for Jody motherfucking Foster, who you know, you know when Ariana Grande said God was a woman, right? I mean, she says God is a woman because God is still a woman. That she had Jodie Foster in mind. So if the gun laws aren't changing for Jodie motherfucking Foster, who are they going to change for? Oprah? 
still, no, Beyonce, I don't see it. I just don't see it. Just to address the whole Catcher in the Rye reference, Hinckley was never obsessed with it. He definitely had a bigger fixation. It just happened that Catcher in the Rye was found on his coffee table when the police went back to inspect his house and when they found all of the letters to Jody. At trial, Hinckley would end up being found not guilty of 13 charges by reason of insanity, and he would end up being detained in a psychiatric hospital. At first, when he was hospitalized, it didn't really seem like he will progress much, because he would describe the shooting of the president as the greatest act of love that he could have possibly provided to Foster. And also, before Bundy was executed in 1989, he became pen pals with him. But in the late 1990s, his parents claimed that they saw that his son made some progress in his recovery. He was allowed to have this clerical job at the hospital and also to work freely throughout this institution. And for many years, based on these reports, he also had a girlfriend who was a former patient at this hospital. Due to these improvements, in 1999, he was even given the permission to have supervised visits with his parents outside of this hospital. But then, temporarily, he lost these privileges because they found a book on Jody in his possession once he got back from one of these visits. So, for the next four years, he wasn't allowed to see his parents outside, or just to go outside anywhere, but then the visits were resumed. In July 2016, after being hospitalized for 35 years, he has been deemed fit for release to live with his then 90-year-old mother. He was provided with a release plan, which imposed a couple of restrictions on his movements, monitoring on the movements, obviously he couldn't approach Jodie Foster for any reason, limiting how far he's able to travel, and also he was to provide authorities with access to his computer browsing history, had they needed one. I want to say I feel sorry for some parts of John Hinckley's life, I feel sorry for his mental state, and I hope he recovered in that sense. But speaking about the restraining conditions, I'm sorry, but, like, Britney Spears is more restrained than this man, and she never even attempted to assassinate a president. From the last article I could find on Hinckley from 2019, he now lives in a modest house on a golf course, he runs a small antiques business, and he adopted a cat named Theo and was still driving his mother and his older brother around. But what he said is that he, well, still lives with his reputation. At one point, he was trying to get a number of a woman in a place, in like a cafe or somewhere, and he signed off the paper with his actual name, and, well, the woman freaked out. Strangers still know what he looks like, and even with his friends, he's struggling to maintain close friendships. A lot of his friends would either end up dying or would get ill or would move away. And also the friends that he made in that mental health institution, well, one of them that he had a non-romantic relationship with and would sort of, like, have as an emotional support, that woman committed suicide in 2017, shattering John Hinckley's world again. And here again, the therapist would advise him to turn to music, to turn to writing songs, taking pictures, and painting, which were the hobbies that always used to calm him down and that he always found therapeutic. And with his release plan, all of his movements are really dependent on the judge's decisions. So, working with therapists, he was permitted to post his music and artwork anonymously on the internet. But then the judge ruled that he can't actually profit from his work and that he can't communicate with his patrons. This might be a good timing to mention that one of the more recent reasons why Hinckley was in the news was because of his YouTube channel. So, it's not really anonymous, it's kind of like under his actual name, and he just posts his songs there. He doesn't communicate with anybody, like, he doesn't respond to comments or anything. And I don't know how these comments are affecting him, because a lot of them are supportive. Like, I gotta give it to the people. But then a ton of them are still poking fun at the situation. So, let's leave John Hinckley and his life. I hope he is profiting, at least, from that YouTube channel, and that he is not doing any harm and not stalking anybody else, and that he is truly doing better when it comes to his mental health now. 
And let's talk about Jody and the aftermath of the event for her. I found this journalist's description of Jody after he did an interview with her in 2018 to be just so poignant. Poignant. You have never... Why are you using words that you have never uttered in real life? It's like, yeah, I've heard of this word once. Let's use it during the next recording. Can't even say it. Okay. It's not about you. The quote is, Imagine how much self-control you would need to survive a life like Foster's and still be functional. Foster is not just functional, she is thriving. She has won Oscars, Golden Globes, Emmys, all the while avoiding easy labels. None of the women she has played could be put in a box, and nor could she. To this day, she is uninterested in being known. Since the day of the shooting, Jody only commented on Hinckley on three occasions. There was a press conference a few days after the attack, then an article that she wrote in Esquire in 1982 after the sentencing, and then during one interview on 60 Minutes in 1999. And even with this, somebody would see this as a call for attention. Somebody would be booking all of these interviews of people wanting her to answer all of their questions. But Jody never did. She, in fact, actually cancelled some appearances where she kind of suspected they might bring Hinckley up. And in particular, in this interview that she did for 60 Minutes in 99, she just describes it in such a healthy way. It's just like she understands what happened here 100%. She said, I never wanted to be an actress who was remembered for that event, because it didn't have anything to do with me. I was kind of a hapless bystander. But what a scaring, strange moment in history for me, to be 17, 18 years old, and to be caught up in a drama like that. During this interview, she acknowledged that this event had major impact on her career choices, but also that her experience was minimal compared to the suffering of the press secretary, James Brady, who was permanently disabled because of these injuries saying, whatever bad moments that I had certainly could never compare to that family. So even in those moments, she is humbled and she is extracting herself out of the situation, while Hinckley was everything but that. So let's put this into terminology. What motivated Hinckley on that day? Is there a name for it? And of course, you bet your ass there is. The name is Erotomania. And this is listed as a delusional disorder. It is a paranoid condition that is characterized by an individual being delusional of another person being infatuated by them. The object of somebody's obsession can also be imaginary, they can be dead, or somebody that they have never ever met in their life. Commonly, the onset of erotomania, so how it begins, is sudden, but it is a chronic disorder. So if you're thinking about those portrayals where a stalker would be thinking that somebody is sending them signals and they are actually infatuated by them once they know the person, or even if they don't, like if the delusion develops to the point where somebody might even see you in ads or like on TV and you would still be portraying this as, like, them giving you signs personally. Yep, that is also part of erotomania and can be related to its onsets. It's also interestingly more common in women, but when men suffer from this disorder, they exhibit violent and stalker-like behaviors. Here, because we don't really have the records of John Hinckley's psychiatric history, so it could be erotomania as a primary mental disorder, or this could also be a symptom of another psychiatric illness. And with the second one, the delusions are due to either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and symptoms can also be enhanced by the use of alcohol or the use of antidepressants. That's why I kind of have to mention it. Usually, why erotomania would start? As I mentioned, it is sudden, but it's sort of a coping mechanism if you have experienced a loss in the family or due to severe loneliness. Again, a couple of things that are matching this case. If we were to look into this discarding the mental health issues, if we were to look at it purely from the assassination attempt point, well, usually the motivation behind assassination attempts is never politics. 
And once you think about it, it will make complete sense. When I first heard about this, I was like, but wait, what? But that doesn't make any sense. Like, usually people attempt to assassinate, like, public figures or politicians. So I was like, wait, this doesn't make much sense. But it kind of does. There was this study that was conducted identifying 83 people who had completed assassinations or made assassinations attempts since 1949, And this study found that in the year before their attacks, most of these people felt invisible and they suffered some disappointment in their lives, which was their true motive. They didn't want to see themselves as these non-entities. They experienced failure after failure after failure and decided that rather than nobody, they wanted to become a somebody. And the choice of the political figures is usually because it would be high-profile, and by that default, that would make them known. In a 1982 piece for Esquire, Foster recounted this experience. A man can buy a poster, pin it on his locker, and imagine the most minute details about a slinky starlet. He'll know her through and through. He'll possess her external reality. So, of course, Hinkley knew me. That woman on the screen was digging in her bag of tricks and representing herself for everyone to assess, to get to know, to take home. So now, as you're going into your next Zoom call, just remember that. That is your superpower. Becoming Jodie Foster. (laughs) Becoming Jodie Foster is your superpower. Because nobody, nobody knows what you think. And if you ever get kidnapped, that is how you survive, okay? You have never, you don't have the experience to talk about on this topic, Maya. Sorry, cut it off. But that is sometimes, as my Scorpio self, what I think about. And when I say sometimes, I mean like often, often. <laughs> so fucking often. But you know, sometimes you can meet up with a friend and you're like part ways and you think everything is okay. While the whole time in their head, shit was playing up. Things were playing up, and you can never know, because no matter how the technology progresses, they should never be able to read your mind. That was your takeaway of this whole plot, yeah? No, like, mental health, gun control, Jodie motherfucking Foster, hey, listen. She hid the fact that she was a lesbian for the longest time, because, again, what is your superpower? Okay, by that default, he hid the fact that he was infatuated by her. We don't care about the criminals here. We care about Jodie Foster and you never being controlled and never telling people everything that's in your head. Who the fuck does that? Don't be a fucking dumbass. So sometimes, just keep it here and just keep thinking. Like, you will never be able to read my mind. But don't smirk about it because then they'll know. So it's like a personal mistake that I have committed multiple times, yes. Never smirk about anything, because then they catch you. That's how they catch you. And before they catch you, and by also questioning why you're so obsessed by keeping these thoughts to yourself and never let anybody know what you're thinking, because there might be ulterior motives to that, or you might just be a Scorpio. By doing that, you make sure you do what? Keep making the world a better place. One motive at a time. Bye, fuckers! This was all over the place. This was all over the fucking joint, you know? It was joint here, and you were, like, everywhere, but in it. (laughs) All right! And now, bye for realsies. And he was the guy that attempted the assassination on President Reagan, and... Reagan? Reagan? Did I Google that? Reagan? I feel it's Reagan, Maya. I feel it's Reagan. <laughs> Did I finally manage to take the router out of this shot? I need to make sure that you guys see that I have Wi-Fi in this house. It's very important for me for you to visually see that there is Wi-Fi here.
Okay. <laughs> Literally, every single shoot, every single time I edit these videos, I need to start wearing glasses, but then you're gonna be able to see the ring light in them. That's why I don't fucking wear them, because it's not aesthetically pleasing. But what it means is that my blind ass doesn't see what the hell is going on and what is in this shot. And then it's always the internet router is just always in there. <laughs> never out of the fucking shot. They really care. They totally did not jump to the next time step, Maya. They so care. It is so much. Intro time! Once the ambulance passes. <laughs> so, let's discuss who is John Hinckley Jr., who are his seniors, and why Reagan. <laughs> Sometimes this script... Sometimes this script wins, okay? You know, sometimes you put it into a script and you forget about it and then it hits you, right? In your face. Who is John Hinckley Jr. and who are his seniors? Shut the fuck up. Who the fuck? Ah, oh, God. Let's just not argue with ourselves right now, Maya. Let's just finish this recording, please. So, who is John Hinckley Jr. and who are his seniors and why Regan? You need to, you need to, you need to quit it. <laughs> Can you, why does it make more sense to you that it's Regan? I just don't understand. Because I'm an immigrant. This is not my first language. <laughs> Get me out of here. What would the show be where, because you keep saying it, right? You want it to become a catchphrase, right, Maya? I'm an immigrant, get me out of here. So what would the show be? Like, just people trying to, like, avoid customs or <laughs> trying to get illegally into a country? Yeah, that would be a completely legal show, teaching people how to scam documents. What the fuck? How would... How does this make sense to you as a reality show? Just please, <laughs> please continue. This is why. Well, so what? All of the catchphrases in this world make sense. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying? What? Stay sexy and don't get murdered makes complete sense. <laughs> nay, nay, I say by Bailey Seria. I'm not cheating over any of these people. I mean, both of those cults and many more. But it doesn't have to make sense, is what I'm trying to say. Let's just make it work. I'm an immigrant. Get me out of here. Put it on a shirt. Maya, you are the one who needs to put it on a shirt <laughs> to convince people. Okay. John was born on May the 29th, 1955, in Oklahoma. Can you say the name of the state? This is just not a day when I should be speaking. And I know that, you know, other immigrants, for example, would say that it's not a day that you should be speaking English. No. No. <laughs> there are days. If I fail in one language, I'm failing at them all. I just should keep quiet the whole day. Just no. This was the worst day for recording. So you came all hyped from the gym, thinking that you have muscles, like you look ripped, and you don't. Hello? I'm recording, bitch. What is it? Better. Rock climbing. Sh show me the pics. Once you're okay, there. Yeah. Shh. It's going rock climbing. Enjoy! Enjoy! Go climb some rocks in it. Okay. Nice. piece of work. See you at home, bitch. Uh, see you at home. Bye! Bye! Uh. <laughs> 